This morning we'll be in the book of Proverbs in several texts. And um, the first one that we'll read will be Proverbs chapter 2. Title this morning of the sermon is The Poisonous Fruit of Desire. We live in a world that is consumed with desire. And almost anything can be excused in our day because of desire. Because we say things like, well, it's what I wanted. It's what I felt. It felt good to me. And so we excuse all kinds of things under the banner of desire. And I just want to say at the very beginning that the, the fruit of desire, though it tastes sweet on the lip, when ingested in a way that is not glorifying unto God, that fruit is poison. And when it enters your system, it will lead you to destruction. And once you are in destruction, it will consume your soul. It has no mercy. And sometimes it's good for us to get a perspective of just how far we've gone. And many of us know these things, but I just want to say them quickly. Just some different areas. First of all, we see a staggering, an astonishing fact. Researchers and those who study such things tell us that there is, is more sexually explicit content on the internet, on the worldwide webosphere, than all other subjects combined. More Google searches are performed every day on this one subject than any other subject. Forty percent of women ages 14 to 40 are now considered hooked on internet pornography. I did say women. I did not say men. Over 40% of pastors in surveys admit to being sexual addicts. Their number one tool to fix their addiction or to get their fix is pornography. Free pornography. That's just one small area. We can move from there to the divorce numbers which wreak havoc across our nation. And one of the top reasons for divorce is unfaithfulness. Adultery. We can move from that stat or that reality to the reality that we are now redefining marriage. The Creator the, gave us the instructions for what marriage is and what brings Him honor. And now our nation and the states of our nation are moving Wholesale to redefine what is not ours to define. And it's not just in so-called same-sex marriage. No, there are those in Utah who have now revived the fight for polygamy. 
Because now that the Supreme Court has said that the government has no right to say that so-called same-sex marriage is not acceptable, they say, wait a minute, hold on. Less than a century ago, you told us we couldn't have more than one wife. If you can't define it, then you can't define it for us either. There's a fight now coming up through the ranks, and it will go before the Supreme Court. Don't be shocked when they remove the ban on polygamy. And we have polygamous marriages from Utah to Mississippi. It's no scare tactic. It's just reality. This is another troubling pointer that the poison of desire has infected us as a nation and as a people both in the church and outside the church you might know that the Episcopal Church is now embroiled in a fight with one of their ministers in Alabama who performed a so-called same-sex marriage and it's not accepted in this state and therefore there's this big legal battle now going on but that's just one segment of this problem More than 20 female teachers have been convicted in this state since 2011 of sexually molesting children under their care. 20 convictions of women teachers. In our own communities, we have seen it. We got cases on the docket right now for those who are predators in our school systems taking advantage of youth and the authority that they have over the youth. There are so many places we could go, and it becomes more bizarre, as a sin always does. You might not be aware of this, but there are those now. The early rumblings have started. There's one case that we know of, worldwide at least, where a woman has petitioned to marry her dog. The sweet, enticing fruit of desire for a moment brings such fulfillment and pleasure. And when it goes down, it bites. And it drags you into the pit of destruction. And its desire is to have your soul. I'm not talking about the world this morning. My main focus is to you, sitting in our pews, naming the name of Christ and hiding your own struggles with this very sin. It sometimes helps us to get this immediate context, but it helps more, I think, to gain some wisdom from the past. And I was thankful this week that uh, Albert Moeller released anew his um, chapter on the book that he wrote on desire, and the chapter focused on J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien's one of my favorite writers in history, fiction writers. He's a master of writing. He was a a specialist in language, many of you might know, or you may not, he knew, he was an expert in uh, about a dozen languages, and he created many of his own languages, just wrote them from nothing, which is amazing to me that your mind thinks that way. J.R.R. Tolkien, 
the famed writer of Lord of the Rings, which he is most famous for, and now The Hobbit, which has been put on the big screen. His greatest works are known to man, but maybe his greatest helps to us come in the form of letters which he wrote to his children. And uh, they are a literal treasure trove of Christian teaching as he writes to his children. He was married to his wife, Edith, in 1916, and they were blessed with four children, three boys, one girl. Uh, Their three boys are John, who was born in 1917, Michael in 1920, Christopher in 1924, and Priscilla, their baby, born in 1929, their only daughter. And he wrote them all letters, and they're collected now, and there's collections of them. And Al Mohler writes about these letters because it deals with Tolkien in the 1940s writing about sexual desire to his boys, warning them of the dangers. He had um, many things to say. I I just want to hit some of the highlights here. Listen to what he said to his son in 1941. Michael, his oldest, who at that time would have, or his middle son, excuse me, who would have been 21 at that time. Listen to what he said. This fallen world, this is a fallen world. The dislocation of sex instinct is one of the chief symptoms of the fall. The world has been going to the bad all down the ages. The various social forms shift and each new mode has its special dangers. But the hard spirit of sexual desire has walked down every street and sat leering in every house since Adam fell. This was his speaking to his lost world and our lost world. He goes on to write, the devil is endlessly ingenious and sex is his favorite subject. He is, a good, he is as good ever, every bit at catching you through generous, romantic, or tender motives as through baser or more animal ones. Tolkien's warning here sounds so out of step with his day because there was such pride in the goodness of humanity in his day. Even after the world wars, there was still this great belief that mankind was good essentially. And Tolkien shared none of this naivety. He saw the deep roots of sexual sin and he saw them not just in one person or two people or a pervert here or there, but he saw them in every single human. And I think we need to recognize this. Tolkien, to this 21-year-old son, says the sexual fantasies of the 20th century are demonic lies intended to ensnare human beings. Sex is a trap. Because human beings are capable of almost infinite rationalizations in terms of sexual motives. Romantic love is not sufficient as a justification for sex. He's preaching at his son. (laughs) He's, He's doing a good job. Tolkien warned his son about friendships. He said, between young men and young women, it is almost impossible to ward off sexual desire. Even if you enter into a friendship without romantic affection, it quickly rises. At least one of the partners, he says, at least one of the partners is almost certain to be inflamed with passion. This is especially true among young people. It could be possible for older people, older men, later in life when, as he says, Sex cools down. 
He gives very practical advice. We miss this in the church. We miss this in our homes. Sex is off off topic for us in the church and in our homes. The world is educating our children every day through the eyes and through the ears of the music and the entertainment that they listen to and watch. And we sit silently like we have nothing to say on this most vital subject, this most vital tool of Satan to trap them in sin. And Tolkien refuses to be silent on this. Even warning down to the practical level of be careful who you're friends with and what your motives are in those friendships, son. And even admitting that as you get older, the desire wanes. It cools down. Tolkien warned Michael to avoid allowing his romantic instinct, which he inherited from his dad. Tolkien was a romantic at heart. Don't let your instinct lead you astray. Don't be fooled by the flattery of sympathy nicely seasoned with the titillation of sex, son. Tolkien presented honest assessments of sex drive in the fallen world. He argued that men are not naturally monogamous any longer. Monogamy, although it is inherited by the fundamental of our faith, is for us men a piece of revealed ethic according to to faith and not to flesh. He goes on in a very frank way to tell us that the sexual revolution is the fruit of this desire that men have because of the fall to be in multiple relationships sexually. And then he goes on to say each of us could helpfully beget in our 30-odd years of full manhood a few hundred children and enjoy the process. He has, a, he has a grip on the heart of the sinfulness of man. And he's speaking specifically, women, don't worry. He's speaking specifically to men, not to women in that, in that regard. So many of us in the church, males, try to act as if we've only had eyes for one woman our whole lives. And we lie to our wives in this way. And it is a lie. And it does no good to lie that way. I think honesty is much better placed. Tolkien is confident that Christianity's understanding of sex and marriage points to an eternal rather than a temporal pleasure. The temporal pleasure comes from the flesh and the eternal pleasure comes from faith. And he sees it clearly. Faithfulness in Christian marriage, he says, entails that great mortification. For a Christian man, there is no escape. Marriage may help to sanctify and direct to its proper object, his sexual desire. Its grace may help him in the struggle, but the struggle remains. It will not satisfy him. Uh, as hunger may be kept off by regular meals, it will offer as many difficulties to the purity proper to that state as it provides easements. No man, however truly he loved his betrothed and bride as a young man, has lived faithfully to her as a wife in mind and body without deliberate, conscious exercise of the will, without self-denial. It is impossible to be faithful in marriage. When the glamour wears off or merely works a bit thin, men begin to think, and women, that they have made a mistake and that the real soulmate is still out there to find. The real soulmate, too, often proves to be the next sexually attractive person that comes along. This is his advice to his son who's about to get married. I read this to you because it helps us to gain perspective. This is not a problem. We often think this way. Sex and sexual sin and sexual desire is not a problem 
acute to our age. It's not new to us. It's been with us for, from Adam forward. To C.S. Lewis, Tolkien said, Christian marriage is not a prohibition of sexual intercourse, but the correct way of sexual temperance. In fact, probably the best way of getting the most satisfying pleasure. Temperance is what he calls for in the marriage bed is where it's to be experienced and there only. He, in wrapping up his belief, he said, men shall not live by sex alone. I take on Jesus' words about bread. Temperance and restraint represent the moderate path between prudishness and licentiousness, the two extremes of sexual obsession. Now there's a word for all of us, right? That's why I end with that quote from him in his letters because some of you are sitting in here thinking, this sermon isn't for me. I don't sexually sin. But you're a prude. You have ungodly thoughts about sex in a negative context towards it in your marriage. And therefore, it's sinful. You see, the moderate partaking, he says, in the marriage is the solution to both prudishness and licentiousness. It's easy to preach at licentiousness. It's harder to talk about prudishness. And I want to say this to the parents because this is where I'm at. I'm trying to educate and train and teach my children about the sexual uh, desire and about God's place for it. But let me tell you, the worst thing you can do, parents, is tell your children that sex is evil or that sex is not pleasurable, or to paint it in some way as gross, that's not edifying unto God. He created it and intended it for our good and for His glory. And when you teach them this, you're setting them up for a life of guilt and shame and failure. So, please whether you're on the side of prudishness or on the side of licentiousness, let's all be honest and look at our own lives and see, let the Proverbs dig and find our sin and root it out with the gospel. The Proverbs are treasure trove themselves of wisdom in this dangerous area of sexual sin. There are also texts in the Proverbs that encourage us to the goodness of sexuality and the goodness of covenant sexual relationships. I want to point out the enticement of sexual sin first. And secondly, I want to look at the cure of sexual sin. And finally, I want us to turn our eyes and hearts towards the blessedness of covenant sexuality. Those are the three sections of the sermon. First of all, sexual sin is an enticement to all mankind. I said mankind, not man. Because I want to be clear, both men and women, young and old. All mankind suffers under this desire and this enticement. Sexual sin is an enticement. How? Well, let's look at the Proverbs for our guides. First of all, we see that sexual sin is covered often in a veneer, a thin veneer of seductive speech. What the Proverbs call seductive speech. Proverbs chapter 2 verse 16. And we're going to do a lot of turning here. Proverbs 2.16 says, So you will be delivered, this is Solomon, to his son. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. Strange woman. We would call her in our day, the whorish woman. 
That's the more literal way to render the word. From the adulteress, the foreign woman, the the woman who seeks to break the covenant vow, you will be delivered from these women and their what? Their smooth speech or their smooth words, enticing language, tempting talk, sexual innuendo, a joke well placed here, a compliment well placed there, an offer veiled in not really being an offer, just testing the water to see how open you are to her. Solomon says this smooth speech is a trap. He talks about it again in chapter 7, verses 11 through 20. He says, first of all, that he sat and looked out his window and he saw through the lattice among the simple people, among the youth, he saw this sin. Look what it says. Verse 10, we'll start in verse 10. Behold, a woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart, guarded in heart. She's not letting you see her true intentions. She's hidden herself, but she's projecting something. What's she projecting? How is she projecting it? She's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. So we see in verse 11 that it's this loud speech, this enticing word, this smooth talk that entices towards sin. Sexual pleasure always comes with enticement. If there wasn't an enticement to it, you wouldn't be tempted by it. If there wasn't an attractiveness and the promise of an allure of fulfilling yourself, who would care? But there's always that first level. This is kind of, I think of it as levels. This sexual speech which is enticing. Chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 13 through 17, the Proverbs writer says, Give instruction to a wise, uh, give instruction to, excuse me, 13 through 18, the woman folly is loud. She's seductive. There's the word, seductive, and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the high place of the town and calls to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. She calls to them. It's this seductive speech. Some of you are called by those you work with daily. They tempt you. They test you. They speak to you in ways that builds you up and makes you think, boy, it'd be nice to have a relationship with that one. Some of you are enticed with these smooth words from your computer. It calls to you when no one's looking, when it's late at night, When there's no opportunity to be caught, it calls to you. It's not harming anyone. Look at me. It justifies to you why it's okay. And if it wasn't enough for us to struggle with desktops, they made laptops so we can carry them everywhere. And then they went from laptops to tablets and tablets to phones. You can get it anywhere now. And it calls, it entices, it tempts, it promises pleasure and fulfillment. Just like the seductive woman, Proverbs 22. 
Proverbs 22, verses 14, verse 14, first part of verse 14. The mouth of the forbidden woman is a deep pit. It's a deep pit. In their day in warfare, they dug pits. They covered them over to look like they were just harmless. And when the approaching army ran to attack them, they would step into these pits covered with leaves or grass or bamboo shoots. They would step on them and fall in the pit. They were trapped. The forbidden woman's mouth is like that pit. She entices you to run to her and then you're falling before you know it. Secondly, it entices us with momentary pleasure. This sexual desire that is inside of us is acted on by the promise of momentary pleasure. Proverbs 7. Proverbs 7, verse 11 through 20. And I'll read that text now. The whole thing. I read just the first part before. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute. While he of heart, she's loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Notice the progression. Now she's in the street. Now she meets him in the market. Now she's on every single street corner. You notice he's growing in his desire. He's, he's beginning to see. I take this text to mean... The son is beginning to be enticed by not just one woman, not just an occasional woman. These are women everywhere. It never stays contained to one thing. It always moves beyond. You start with the computer and you move to a co-worker and her flirtatiousness. And the next thing you know, there's a full-born affair, adulterous relationship taking place. It never stays in one place. It always progresses. This momentary pleasure, this promise is on the street. It's in the market. It's on the street corners. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today, I have paid my vows. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And have, I've found you. She promises. Notice the momentary pleasure that's about to be promised. It's promised like it's just for him. I wouldn't do this with just anybody. I promise you're special to me. Enticing words and deceit. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens and Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Momentary pleasure. For my husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him and at full moon he will come home. Chapter 9. Verse 16, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This promise is so enticing. It's one time. It won't hurt anybody. No strings attached. Let's just let go. We've had a stressful time in our lives. Let's just let go. Seductive speech and momentary pleasures and enticement and sexual addiction itself initially is enticing. This is especially important for me to say. Chapter 2, verse 18 through 19. Her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed Look at this. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the path of life. This speaks to the addictiveness of this sin. 
All sin in some way is addictive. Let's don't make any mistake. A liar who gets away with lying one time and benefits will lie again. Okay? But let's just admit some sins are more addicting than others. They, they grab us deeper with deeper and more sharp hooks than other sins. Sex is one of those that digs deep. It puts the claws of the tentacles into the very core of the person and grabs hold. That's why the proverb writer says, those who go on this path don't come back. That's speaking to the addiction of it. Chapter 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated? That word intoxicated is what I want us to see there. Like a drunk to alcohol, so a sexual addict to pornography or its co-worker or the woman across the street or the person at the red light. It's indiscriminate. People who drink occasionally usually prefer a type of alcohol. One or another. And they kind of stay in one lane and they drink a little here and it doesn't control their lives. It's in moderation. An alcoholic, a person who's given to drunkenness, will drink anything. Proof in point, put them in a dry out center. You can't give them scope or Listerine. They'll drink it. You can't give them rubbing alcohol. They become indiscriminate. Now I want to tell you, sex is the same way. Once you break the the guidelines of the Creator, it becomes indiscriminate. It doesn't matter where it gets its pleasure from. Matter of fact, it has to seek new pleasures to satisfy itself. And that's what he's talking about. This is intoxicating. It's intoxicating. Verse 20 is pointing us to the fact that that we are intoxicated by sexual pleasure from forbidden women and embraces the bosom of an adulteress. Who does this? Why should you, he says. But it's just pointing to this addictiveness. Chapter 22, one more text on this point of the enticement of this sexual addiction. Chapter 22, verse 14 says, The mouth of forbidden women is a deep pit. He with whom the Lord is angry will fall into it. It's a trap. It's a deep pit. What's the next step in our enticement? Now it becomes ugly, but it's too late. We're trapped in our sexual sin. It started with smooth words and seductive speech. It moved to momentary pleasure, which for the moment was pleasurous. Then it became a pit of trap and you couldn't get out. And now what happens? Destruction. Destruction. Go back to chapter 2 again. Verses 21 and 22. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is his summation of the value of wisdom is that those who follow wisdom prosper and live and those who reject wisdom die. They are destroyed. They are rooted out. Chapter 5, verses 21 through 23. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 
in chapter 9, verse 18, says, But he does not know that the dead are there. She calls him in, these simple people, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. What happens? She invites you in with stolen water and bread eaten in secret, and she doesn't tell you that in the back room are already corpses of men who she's already consumed and been done away with, has no need of them anymore. The sexual enticement starts with smooth words. It moves to momentary pleasure. It becomes a pit and it leads to destruction. This is the portrait of the Proverbs dealing with sexual sin. Secondly, what is the cure? Sexual sin has only one cure. Only one cure. I have to leave the Proverbs, but I think you'll forgive me. Because the picture I've just painted, especially to those who know their sin. Listen, some of you are Pharisees. So what, what Jesus says to the Pharisees is, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for you. Why? Because those who aren't sick don't need a physician. He's not saying the Pharisees aren't sick. He's saying they don't recognize their sickness, so they're not help. You can't help them. I didn't come to help you who think you have nothing wrong with you. I came for those who are sick, those who are dead. That's who Jesus came for. He came for those who were blind and deaf and lame and dumb and dead in sin. That's who Jesus came for. So some of you have sat and listened to this description. You've thought of all the other people in the world who are sinning in this way and thought, how gross, how terrible, how dare they? This part of the sermon is not for you. Because it holds no hope to you. Because you don't think you have a problem. You don't think you're dead. You think everybody else is dead. This part of the sermon, this second point, is for those who know they are enticed and they are sinning and they are on the road to dying. That's who this part is for. Just to be clear, John, John 7 verse 53. we got to go to the Lord to see what cures sexual sin. What cures it? A law? Of course not. The Old Testament is filled with commands not to commit sexual sin. And the people of Israel were sexually immoral. What cures this sin? 7.53 They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. Now I just want to say, that's what the Proverbs has done for some of you this morning. The Proverbs has caught you by the nap of the neck and taking you in the midst of the presence of Jesus Christ with all your ugliness. And it has laid you down because it's faithful to do this and witnessed against you. You're guilty. And the immediate response for us as fallen beings 
not living in Christ, not thinking about our life in Christ, is to feel shame and guilt and to be repressed and weighed down and to think, I'm an utter failure. I can never live up to this. And there's despair. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees did with this woman. They drug her out. They threw her down, possibly with no clothes on, in the presence of the most holy one and said, she's been caught. The law says she should be stoned along with the man she was caught with. What do you say, Jesus? There's one cure to the sin of sexual sin. The sin of sexual desire that's acted on. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. No need to try to figure it out. If he had wanted us to know, he would tell us. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. She's covered. She's waiting. She knows. These Pharisees and scribes think, and she may have thought, they're without sin. They're going to stone me. She waited for the pelting that was coming. She was beyond hope. She was desperate. But what happens? Verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones. Why? Because the older ones knew they were not without sin. Even in this sexual area, they knew. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before Him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, And he says to anyone in this room who has been trapped in sexual sin and now is turning away from that to him, this is what he says. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Grace is the answer sin in the sexual area. The forgiveness of a perfect and holy God. The forgiveness of the one who has the right to pick up the stones that the others dropped and stone her to death. Jesus had that right, but He didn't take it. He looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. What grace will cause sin to abound. Carlton, you're getting dangerous. You're telling these sinners that God will forgive them and that's going to cause them to sin. Look what he says. Go, therefore, and sin no more. Grace is the answer because grace is the only thing that lets the human heart free from the captivity of sin and sets it free to the path of righteousness and following after the one who has forgiven them. To whom much is forgiven, then they forgive much. That text tells us the key of grace. Why does grace work this way? Because once we realize our sin and our desires have led us into destruction and we know we're going to die without help from God and He gives us the grace of His Son, at that moment we become the chief forgivers. Grace sets our heart free. When you find a person that's unwilling to forgive, you find a person who's never been forgiven. That's what the Bible says. Grace sets us free. The cure for sexual sin, like all other sin, is one. It is the grace 
of Jesus Christ, in the assurance of the gospel that Jesus Christ, though he could have condemned, did not condemn, but rather took the condemnation on himself and died on the tree for you and for me and for all of our sexual impurity. He died and it is now dead and he's been raised to new life and we are raised with him. And so because we have been forgiven, now we forgive. Now we walk in that freedom to forgive. Let me say, show you how that ethic of grace works out. First Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writing to the Corinthians makes it very plain. Makes it very, very plain. He's writing to Christians. First Corinthians 6 verse 12. All things are lawful. For me, that's the slogan of the Corinthians. That's not Paul's words. This is often misunderstood. Paul is not saying all things are lawful for me. That's not Paul. Paul's quoting what they're saying. What their leaders were saying was, all things are lawful for me. The flesh is of no account. We can go sin. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. That's Paul. Notice in quotes, he puts it again. Your, your modern text has it in quotes. All things are lawful for me. That's their scream. That's the false teacher's saying. That's not Paul. Paul's not saying that. That's what false teachers are saying. His answer, I will not be enslaved by anything. So his answer to this, well, grace has come and the flesh doesn't matter, so let's all just go let loose and live is it's not helpful and it will enslave you and you shouldn't be a slave to anything. Then he moves on and he begins to explain food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Not a law. No law will keep you from sexual sin, men. Realizing you are the body of Christ will keep you from sin in this area. Shall I then take the members of Christ and join them to prostitutes? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The gospel sets us free. Our realization of our union with Christ sets us free. Our realization that we are the temple of the living God sets us free from sexual sin. Not legalism, not rules, not anything else, only one cure, the gospel. And in the realization of who we are in Him, for you were bought with a price, so, so glorify God in your body. Or in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilel? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temp the temple of God with the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. 
I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, the promises set us free from sin, not legalism, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What sets a Christian free is not rules and regulations, but the realization of who they are in Christ, the temple of the living God. And so they move from sin and, and, and all of its destruction to life eternal. How do I know? How do I know? I know because it's in the Word of God. Number one. Foremost, it's in the Word of God. But number two, this sinner, this sexual sinner, was set free. Not by rules. Not by loss. Not by guilt. Not by shame. Not by threats. But by promises. By Pure, precious gospel promises. So I want to close by saying, set your eyes, therefore, not on the things of this world, but on where Christ is. He is the light of the world. He will shed light in the dark places of your soul. He is the bread of life. It's free and without price. Like the sexual sin promises you bread free of your choosing, Christ truly is free. He leads to life. It leads to destruction. Set yourself on Christ. Hope in Christ. And you will be set free. Because who the Son sets free is free indeed. There's one more area I want to cover and I'm going to, I'm going to pull it over into a future message about the pure blessedness of sexuality in a covenant called marriage. I want to pull that in. I've got a sermon on marriage and I'll put it there. I just want to close saying to you, cling to Jesus. Self-righteous person, die to your self-righteousness and cling to Jesus. Sexual sinner, die to your sexual sin and cling to Jesus. You say it's simple. It's so simple. It's the only cure. Look to Him and you will be saved.